Hi, I'm Azilia. I'm Iqbal, and this is the He Says. She Says. <laughs> they say they pot- say podcast. <laughs> Hi guys, welcome to today's episode of He Says, She Says, They Say. I'm your host, Iqbal, here with Azilia. And we have a very special guest today, Munira Mustafa, a security practitioner who is here to discuss a very interesting topic with us. Say hello to our guests. Hi everyone, nice to meet you and thank you for having me on the thank show. Thank you for being on the show, Munira. <laughs> yeah, thank you for joining us on such short notice. So the reason we invited Munira on today Earlier this week, or last week, I guess whenever we published this episode, a gunman shot and killed eight people, mostly Asian women, across three spas in Atlanta, Georgia. And reports are still coming out as we were putting this episode together, but from what we know, the shooter was a 21-year-old white guy who told the police that he had been treated for sexual addiction. According to CNN, he had just been kicked out of his parents' house for spending hours on end watching pornography. And he had also been a regular at the spas he shot up. A lot of people are saying that these are clues he belongs to a subculture of people on the internet known as incels. And I guess today we have Munira here with us to talk more about what those are and what we should know about incels. But Munira, I am curious. What led you into wanting to know more about incel study? And how did you get into it? Okay, so straight up, just going to clarify that I don't actually look at this movement specifically. My work is actually on jihadi terrorism. Yep. I look at jihadi terrorism and terrorist events at both local and global level. Yep. So that's where a lot of my work is based on. And I've worked in regional desks, including Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Middle East, and South Asia. Yep. So when the whole insult subculture kind of exploded online, I think my first reaction was kind of like, huh, yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense how? So given the events nowadays, you could forgive a lot of people for thinking that this whole right-wing movement is modern and new and recent. It's actually not. It goes back decades. And I've kind of had a run-in with Nazis myself in Europe when I was living in Russia. Wow, okay. Yeah, and my friend was beaten up badly by neo-Nazis. And that was one of my actual contact and experience with the movement within the European sphere. Yep. But it kind of intersects. So to start with, I'll just explain what is incel. Incel is actually a portmanteau of these two words, involuntary celibate. Yep. It's a movement that started online. And it's got an interesting history because ironically, it wasn't started by dudes. It was started by women. Yep. Back in 1997, a woman who only wanted to be identified as Alana, who was having a difficult time dating and getting into a relationship. So she felt like, I can't be the only one who's experiencing this. Mm -hmm. So she started an online community for lonely people online who are unable to find sexual partners to turn to for community support and advice on dating, things like that. Mm -hmm. If you remember, I (laughs) I can't guess how old you were back in the 1990s, but that was the beginning of the boom of the internet and chat rooms and people were starting to get into online dating, things like that. Yeah. Okay, so Munira, you mentioned Alana as the inventor or the first instance of incel and she was a lady who had difficulty with her relationships and so she started this online community for people with similar experiences as her to discuss their thoughts and feelings and all 
That's and right. do you have an idea of what happens afterwards? Because as far as we know, during this point, incel referred to both men and women. That's and right. how did this evolve into the misogynistic men-only phenomenon that we know today? All right. So when she came up with the idea, Alana called it the Alana's Involuntary Celibacy Project. Yeah. It was too long. So people were like, okay, that's just too difficult to say. Why not just call it incel? So the community then became a forum for men and women to exchange ideas and talk about their loneliness and figure stuff out. And in a recent interview a couple of years ago, Alana said that it was actually a very supportive community. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason why it was very supportive and positive was because it was very well curated and very well moderated. Mm. And in fact, there were actually two people who met within that community, fell in love and got married to each other. Wow. So, yeah. So it wasn't all that evil to start with. Alana had envisioned that the community to be all-inclusive and to be very welcoming to anyone whose sex lives were marginalized for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And when she finally left the community, she felt like she did a great job, and she did. But she, you know, you start something, a project, and then it took off, and then you want to move on. And her own social life was also blossoming at the time. So she yeah. left the community, and then she went on living her life. And so I guess she didn't think that she would hear about incel anymore mm -hmm. until 2015 when Elliot Roger killing spree happened and she happened to be in a bookstore and picked up a copy of Mother Jones and saw the article on Elliot Rogers and the word incel just jumped out at her. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really interesting because, again, she is credited with having invented the term involuntary celibate incel. Yeah. But she describes the movement now as like she was a scientist who invented something that ended up being a weapon of war. And that really is such a good way to put it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like Oppenheimer who created the atom bomb. Yep. And that's just what happened with incel. And so from this safe space, gender-inclusive, healthy community, the incel movement starts to become more and more the movement that we know today yep. as it made its way onto other forums like 4chan, Reddit. Mm -hmm. And Reddit had a huge hand in making it what it is today with the incel subreddit. Yeah. Do you know a bit about this subreddit or about the activity that was going on among incels on Reddit? So I kind of got the gist of it from the discussions that a lot of my friends and colleagues were having about what was going on after the Elliot Rogers killing happened. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. understanding from what I could glean so far from the articles I've read was that there's an overlap between the incel subculture and Reddit and 4chan. And as you know, 4chan has this swirling culture of its own. <laughs> And mm -hmm. I think that the thing about 4chan is that it's not moderated. Right. I could be wrong, but that's the impression I got because I think they really adhere to the whole free speech aspect and they just want to be as offensive as possible. Right. And that's a space that gave rise to a lot of memes that we've seen before. And a lot of the internet culture that we are seeing today was actually born within these forums. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit like how the whole social justice warrior conversation was born in the spaces of Tumblr. Is there curation or moderation on Tumblr? So that's an interesting question because what's curious is that there were all sorts of groups and movements and cultures thriving on Tumblr as well, but it also depends on which space you're in. Yeah. So if you're in a very racist space, it will become an echo chamber. You are more likely to propagate that. It kind of geared towards your own interests. Right. So you are more likely to share and reblog the content that you like. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say someone posts the kind of violent sexual imagery that you saw quite often on 4chan or maybe even parts of Reddit. 
would there be consequences if you tried doing that stuff on Tumblr? So after the acquisition of Yahoo, and I can't remember who's owning Tumblr now, there was a lot of restriction on the content. Mm-hmm. So a lot of sex workers were using Tumblr, and a lot of porn aficionados were using Tumblr as well to put on porn content, and a lot of those were taken down as a result. Hmm. Okay, so it seems like one of the reasons 4chan managed to become the hub of conversation that it became was because of the lack of moderation. Correct. And the lack of content curating. Yes. But it seemed like there was also some level of moderation and curation happening on Tumblr as well. But do you have any theories for why both websites spawned such different subcultures? So I think a lot of it has to do with the ownership. This is what we are seeing with Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook and Jack, what's his name? Jack Dorsey. Yeah, Jack Dorsey. I just see him as at Jack on Twitter. So that's what happened because remember back when Mark Zuckerberg was just a university student and then he dropped out of Harvard? Yeah. Facebook kind of represent that aspect of him. If you remember the interface of Facebook and everything, it was very, very simple. It kind of represents Mark Zuckerberg's demeanor back then. Mm-hmm. It had that collegial nature to it, like very, very university. But then Mark Zuckerberg turned into like, the person he is today. He became more corporate. And that's what projected to Facebook as well. Facebook had that facelift. Yep. Everything about him has changed. And Facebook started to embrace that kind of change as well. Yep. That's what happened with Twitter as well. When these guys became more corporate, Facebook and Twitter embraced that corporate aspect as well, and it became the giants that we're seeing today. A lot has been said about the role of these websites mm-hmm. in the creation or the proliferation of extremist ideology. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe say a word or two about that? Yeah, so we're going to take 4chan for example. Yeah. What was the owner of 4chan last time? I don't know if he still is. Mood, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. If I remember, Mood was kind of like, doesn't care about anything. I remember there was the whole meme about him saying something really stupid, offending people. And I think that's what happened with 4chan as well. That was exactly the product that they're selling. You could say whatever you want to say in these spaces and we're not going to stop you. And I think that's part of the reason why the extremist movements, right-wing extremists, far-right movements start to thrive in these spaces because there's no moderation. There's no one telling them that everything that they're saying is bad or wrong. Yeah. And they really embrace their free speech very, very widely and freely in those spaces. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why a lot of the ideologies like Meninist came about. A lot of these dangerous, toxic conversations were taking place in 4chan and these subreddits. Mm-hmm. And then when Twitter became more and more mainstream, suddenly everyone was congregating on Twitter. I think it's just a natural progression that if they are already active on one side of the internet, it's very likely that they'll have a Twitter account as well. Right, and so now that you've mentioned Meninist, the men's right movement, can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how it relates to incel culture? So, you know that expression, every impact, there's a reaction? Yes. Something like that. When the feminist movement started taking off in 2014, mm-hmm. I think what happened was these guys were feeling threatened by the ideas, the concepts, the theories were being espoused by women. And then they kind of enact their own movement called the Meninist culture and things like that. That's their response to feminists. Yeah. From my perspective, I think it's very difficult to separate anti-feminism from right-wing movement because right-wing movements, is, as you know, they're super traditionalist. Mm-hmm. In their mind, there's no equality. There's a place for men, there's a place for women, and that's how it should be. It's a feature, not a bug. So when we're talking about incels and we're talking about extremist or conservative ideology, Munira, mm-hmm. 
is the whole ideology, the whole belief system religious in its foundation or is it secular? Because I guess with incels, the whole genesis of it was that people were, you know, involuntary celibate. They were not having sexual relationships, they were not having sexual partners, and that was the root of their resentment and angst. On that, isn't it because they feel unwanted or excluded from society? I mean, I'm not sure if it's related to religion per se, and Munira can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but based on what I've read so far, I don't know if religion is the cause of it at all. No, it's not religious. It might be political, but that's also depends on how you look at it. But I think it's more cultural rather than religious mm. or political. Because, as you know, growing up in Malaysia, we were taught when we were younger that male and female have their own places in society. And we still see that kind of conversation on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, like, you know, women shouldn't be working, they should just stay at home, be a mother, nurture, raise the kids, things like that. Assuming that the society upholds a strong patriarchal system, right? What about for those that does not uphold the same system? What happens then? I think that's kind of complicated to answer because the thing about insults is that they have this sense of entitlement mm. to women's bodies. And where does this entitlement come from then? If not from a religious perspective of white male supremacists? It kind of have that element of white supremacy actually. So we take Elliot Rogers' case for example. Mm -hmm. I didn't really read through his whole manifesto but it's quite interesting because Elliot Rogers' father is a Westerner and his mother was Malaysian Chinese. Whoa! Whoa. Really? Yeah. Are you serious? So awkward. Wow, so, yeah. mind-blowing. <laughs> that is mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh my wow. God. I'm like looking this up right now and Elliot Raja was born in London to Peter Raja and Lee Chin, a Malaysian-born nurse who worked on the set of Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. His father is a filmmaker and then his parents separated. Before his violence, he was already feeling rejected and I think it's partially because of his relationship with his father. And I think he was having some difficulties being popular in school. So based on his experiences, he reinforces these ideas of these rejections by thinking that nothing he did was ever enough. He felt like he couldn't compete with his whiter, more superior peers in his school. And he felt like not being white was a setback for him. And the idea just kind of reinforced himself. He even dyed his hair blonde at one point. He had some attention but then once it started faded and he fell into that cycle again where he was feeling rejected constantly unlucky in love things like that and then that resentment grew into anger and anger grew into violence and then on that day he acted out and he killed women and he wrote this manifesto you know expressing his anger and his frustration for not being able to be successful with women and it kind of screams the fact that he was always feeling short all of his life and then he just blamed all of these failures on women was he also blaming all the chads of the society? Oh yeah. So interestingly enough, this insult subculture, they have their own language, they have their own terminology. They use derogatory words like femoids on women because that's the way of degrading women. They don't want to humanize women because they blame their failures and everything wrong in the world on women. So to reinforce that idea that they are more superior, 
they would reduce women to this lesser being and call them femoids and they have these names like Chats and Stacy's and Becky's and there's this meme I saw comparing the bone structure of Chads and incels. <laughs> Chads are supposed to be this hot gym bro like yeah. Johnny Bravo. It was bewildering and then this is interesting about how they distinguish between Becky's and Stacy's. Mm-hmm. So Becky's are like the so-called basic bitches mm-hmm. you know who's always aspiring to win herself a Chad and Becky's are kind of like the girls on the lower rung. The ones that incels really want are Becky's hmm. but Becky's are of their leagues because they're always blonde gorgeous sexy kind of like that cartoon in that Powerpuff Girls the secretary Miss mm. Bellum yeah <laughs> yeah Munira could you maybe try and run us through the logic of these guys they're having bad luck attracting women Becky's but then their solution to it is to degrade and look down on these same targets that they were hoping to attract Is there a logic to it that you might know of? So they think that Stacey's are only interested in chats with money. Mm-hmm. And the only way to attract these women that they want is either they're flush with money or they're physically attractive, things like that. Mm-hmm. But the incel guys already feel very poorly of themselves. So they go into these spaces to shitpost about their failures in the dating game and then kind of reinforce everyone's ideas about what was so wrong in the world. And then they have this whole concept of red pill and blue pill, mm-hmm. which was inspired by the Matrix. And funnily enough, the Matrix writers turn out to be trans people themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So the concept of red pill and blue pill is that blue pill is the world of illusion and red pill is the hard mm-hmm. truth. Okay. The red pill to them is that the hard truth is that they're never going to win. Okay. So the only way for oh. them to elevate themselves is they either become Chad themselves to attract Stacey's, otherwise they succumb to the black pill, which is a very fatalistic look at the world, and they tend to be very depressive and suicidal as a result. And that's the danger about these spaces, because they go into these spaces and they talk about this, and then they just keep on reinforcing this idea and with no one countering these ideas, like, maybe you should consider doing this or that. And it just becomes a very, very toxic worldview about how the world really works. So what's interesting is um, I was watching an interview online on incel culture, and they asked this kid how and why did he become an incel himself. And he responded by saying he's not considered a full incel. So for him, an idea that it is derogatory towards women is harmless. And he justifies this by saying that the forum he often goes to for chats with other incels contains way worse people who has more terrible thoughts of women. And this then manifests into something bigger. So his original idea on women being bad people is doubled down by a bigger claim on how evil women are on that forum and... There is no intervention on this. Yeah, like, I guess Azula raises a really interesting point in that these communities become this self-reinforcing cycle of extremist thought. And Munira, because your expertise before has been in jihadi movements, Islamic terrorist movements, does the incel movement share some traits with these classic ideas of terrorist movements, do you think? Okay, that's interesting because my perspective on security is kind of unpopular because... The terrorism studies often overlook the gender studies aspect. And you have to understand why. Because the security field is notoriously male, traditionally white male. So I find it quite interesting when a lot of these movements happen and the violence erupted and suddenly they're trying to grasp what's going on. And then the whole concept of toxic masculinity has emerged in the feminist slash gender studies for a while now. So a few women terrorism scholars who also did gender studies, they wanted to throw in that theory, but it's usually ignored up until recently. And I feel like there's a bit more push for this aspect of 
terrorism and political violence to be studied. So in my point of view, I kind of see where it can have some similarities with jihadi terrorism, but I think it would be a fallacy to say that all the violence, I mean, obviously all this violence were committed by majority male. Mm -hmm. But in saying that, I am also conscious of the fact that we are also not acknowledging that there are some aspects of violence also contributed by female because I have seen instances where female terrorists are often overlooked. Their participation, their recruitment, their activities. And I feel like that's a kind of aspect that I'm seeing right now with the whole right-wing, far-right, incel movements as well because we're only starting to try and blend together concepts from the gender studies and apply it into explaining away why young men are so aggressive and so angry. And I think that this is not something that only terrorism studies could strictly address. It needs to be holistic. It needs to involve a lot of history lessons, sociology, psychology, and things like that. Munira, so now that we're on this part of the conversation, a lot of the violence attributed to incel thought Mm -hmm. have been perpetrated in the West by, again, white men, Mm -hmm. in countries like Canada and the US mostly. So does this mean that the incel idea has gone the furthest in these countries? Or do you think incel thought and belief does exist in other parts of the world? And we're just not seeing it because, I don't know, we have tougher gun laws in other parts of the world. That would depend on their security apparatus. And I think that we need to acknowledge how impactful social media has been on real-world violence. When I was a teenager, I used to hear things like what happens online stays online. This is the real world. (laughs) And we are learning through the hard way. That's not the correct way of thinking. What happens online can develop in real world and become super physical, super violent. And we've seen that being demonstrated before our eyes. So I think some aspect of it has to do with laws and legislations and how these security apparatus behave as well. You have to understand how the West operates because at the time after the war on terror, Mm -hmm. their priorities were strictly Islamist terrorism. They were focusing on Al-Qaeda, on ISIS. So I think there's some overlook on the dangers of the right wing. And right wing violence is not new. It has always been in fashion. It never left. But it's just that social media, the internet has changed everything. Back then before social media, people had to go meet up in secluded spot and, you know, plot and plan and things like that. And it was a lot easier to monitor that kind of behavior. But the advent of internet, it became a kind of a blind spot for a lot of security apparatus. They're monitoring jihadi terrorism, jihadi actors, but there's not a lot of weight being placed on right-wing extremists. Part of it is because a lot of the discussion, the ideas and everything were so mainstream. What happened is that there are violent young men who didn't Mm -hmm. act up before this because they didn't have the capabilities or anyone to reinforce this. Here's the thing. Organizing violence is actually a lot more difficult than people think. But once you have the right people into it, you can do whatever. It's a lot easier to suppress groups rather than individuals. It's harder to suppress individuals, especially if they're lone actors. You cannot predict how a lone actor behaves. They can say stuff, but no one is going to take him seriously. And that's what happened with incels. A lot of these thoughts come in the form of shitposting, memes, and things like that. So nobody is going to take them seriously when they say that they're going to commit violence. And so on that note, there have been a bunch of papers and articles and studies done on incels as a security threat, but is that still a fringe view or is it becoming more mainstream? Is it still being taken not as seriously or is there a growing sense of urgency among people looking at this more closely? 
It's funny you should mention that because Iqbal, you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen my tweet about what happened in Singapore recently where a 16-year-old kid, he was planning to attack two mosques and he was actually inspired by what happened in Christchurch. Right. And he was arrested last December. And it's funny because I'm in a couple of chat groups with a bunch of other people looking into some similar stuff I look. And I was writing up a summary on the Global Terrorism Index 2020. And I was writing about how Malaysia, Southeast Asia should consider right-wing extremism as a potential threat. And this white guy was mm -hmm. laughing and said, that, oh, what? White supremacy is going to be a danger to Malaysia. Mm. <laughs> so when the news came out, I was like, okay, vindicate it. But the point I'm trying to yeah. say is that I think people still make the mistake of understanding how ideas evolving, transforming, and then being adopted to fit in narratives online. Mm -hmm. Just because it happened in the West doesn't mean that it cannot happen in Southeast Asia. That's both the great and the worst thing about the internet. The ideas just spread. Yeah. That's why I think it's a mistake to think that the violence that we're seeing is only happening in the West because I think that there is a potential that people will be inspired to do the same thing in other corners of the world. When people have certain ideas about devaluing or dehumanizing people that they see as beneath them in the social ladder, they are more likely yeah. to borrow ideas and the language to fit in their own narrative. And we're seeing that even now as well on Facebook and things like that within the Malaysian sphere. Those language that they're using is not from our language, it's language borrowed. Right. And so I guess, Munira, just to steer our discussion towards the end, mm -hmm. now that we've talked about incels as an uh, internet subculture and now as a security threat, what happens from here? Like, if people were to start taking this phenomenon more seriously, what would be the best course of action? Would more internet censorship be the answer? Would it have helped if 4chan never existed, if Reddit moderators were more harsh in clamping down on these early communities? Or would that have created a whole different set of problems? What's the answer from here on out? I don't think there's any real straight answers. And we can only learn as we go along. as what we did with ISIS as well. You know, when they were spreading their propaganda on all sorts of channels and on social media, mm -hmm. at the time, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg was super lackadaisical about it. Mm -hmm. They were like, it's free speech and things like that. We don't do that. We don't censor and things like that. But then there's a lot of copycat behavior, one lone actor after another. As it turns out that they weren't lone actors at all. They were actually connected. There's a huge network of ISIS supporters. And then that's when they realized that there is a danger on letting this happen. So they started to clamp down. They started to deplatform anyone who sound like ISIS, who looked like ISIS, who were sharing ISIS content. They started to remove all this. But the downside of that is that the strategy wasn't very good in a way that they kind of think all Arabs are ISIS. So there's a lot of confusion because you might already know this. Twitter and Facebook also rely on automated content moderation they use the computer machine learning yep. to moderate this content so they feed these machines with the phrases and things like that and then the machine thinks that they catch the bad guys but unfortunately they accidentally ban the good guys as well <laughs> yep a friend of mine kyle got blocked on twitter because he's actually someone who focused on middle east violence and i think there was an explosion or something and he was sharing the video and then i think it's the phrases that he used that got him an automated ban hmm. So moving forward, I think there's a strong pros and cons with this because starting with the U.S., because these companies are based in the U.S., I think they need to redefine what exactly is free speech and how to differentiate between 
free speech and enabling hate speech that could mobilize people into violence. There needs to be more private-public partnership between companies and state actors, but there is a danger to aggressive deplatforming as well because from what I've seen with what happened with ISIS is that they're not all hands with the internet and this is my personal pet peeve. I hate it when people say ISIS are very good at exploiting the internet. They're not good at exploiting the internet. They're just one step ahead of us because they're not dumbasses. <laughs> okay. Here's a concept that people keep forgetting. Everyone uses the internet. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. It doesn't matter if you're living in a desert, in a jungle. Everyone uses the internet. You are dead wrong to think that these people are backwards or uneducated. Yeah. That's the first thing that people need to wrap their heads around. In fact, that's actually like an advantage to them because people underestimate them a lot. Exactly, and so. that's what happened with Al-Qaeda. They actually had a GeoCities website, I think, and that's where their followers used to download all their propaganda and their sermons and everything that Osama bin Laden was saying. It was only when all this happening ISIS, that's when they started to realize that, oh, there's a danger to leaving this alone. So they started taking down all these websites aggressively. But the downside to this is that these actors were driven a lot deeper into the subcutaneous side of the internet, and it's a lot harder to moderate them. And there's the instance of the dark web, things like that, but I'm not going to get into that because that's way too technical even for me. And so like, for example, Reddit. Reddit was started in 2005, yeah. but then it revised its rules in 2017 Correct. to ban content that encourages, glorifies insights or calls for violence or physical harm against an individual or a group of people. So did that push people further underground? And was that the right call to make or should they have done it sooner? Or what do you think of that? That's the interesting thing when I read through Alana's case. Part of the reason why her incel community wasn't violent in the first place because she was very good at moderating them. And I think people need to understand the importance of content moderation and why it has to be strictly moderated and things like that. But the challenge is that there's like millions and billions of users and you only have a handful of people doing this work. Yeah. So that's the thing. And then the other thing is that there's a concern that they will be driven deeper underground, but that's a conversation that will evolve as events unfold. So there's no clear answer. However, I think deep platforming and content moderation is a good way to start. Hmm. And there should be a zero tolerance on hate speech in whatever nature against sexuality, race, and things like that. But again, it all depends on how these sites define hate speech. And so this perspective that moderation and deplatforming, that it's a good first step, Munira, is this a perspective that's shared by other security practitioners? Yes and no. A lot of them are kind of against deplatforming. Some of them said it doesn't work, things like that. But you have to understand how the legislation process also works as well on the ground as we speak. I can't really speak on Malaysia's way of doing things, but we have that MCMC. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's not like that in the U.S. U.S. doesn't centralize these things. Like, you know that the state of California has its own internet legislation, right? Hmm. So it's kind of confusing. I, I, I picked this up in my class on U.S. cyber policy, and it was such a headache. And I complained <laughs> to my professor that why can't you guys just have this department to handle? But I also realized that's not something feasible because the U.S. is so large. It's easier to say that in Malaysia because we're a smaller country and yep. we can centralize yeah. stuff. And I don't know about U.K. now because of Brexit, but it used to be that in the U.K. and all of Europe, they have the European legislation on the internet, things like that. So they have some ground rules to abide with. So there's a degree 
degree of control, so to speak. But a lot of people are not that impressed with this kind of stuff because they adhere to the whole concept of free speech so much. I don't want to position myself as someone to tell the U.S. what to do. But it's also important to recognize that this is also a uniquely U.S. problem that somehow kind of have a ripple effect on the rest of us. Right. Yeah. I think that's the end of my questions. Thank you so much, Munira, for joining us today. We learned a lot having you with Thanks, us. Thanks, Munira. Thank you listeners for tuning in to the He Says, She Says, They Say podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, feel free to drop us an email at info at he, she, they, say.com or by following us on Twitter at he, she, they, say underscore. Peace.